ask God's favor and pray. Father, thank you for your love and grace in uh, family, the holidays, uh, the hope of a new year that you bring. Thank you for Sue Bowles and her faith and her heart so sensitive to you. Thank you for her encouragement she brings to my life. Lord, we radically dependent upon you. And ask your favor, please, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, um, so by way of review, we took a big, big chunk from the last time we were in Isaiah, and we walked through all the judgment chapters that are bringing localized judgment on all the, the enemies of Israel north, all the enemies of Israel south, and even those to the east. And, uh, and, and typically, in, in the fashion of Isaiah, he can write harsh, harsh, harsh words of judgment, but then he can talk about the most beautiful, kind, and gracious spiritual language that you're going to find in the Old Testament. And I get the sense, if I could speak uh, kind of anachronistically, um, Justin, he gets the gospel. He somehow gets it, and, and, and that's why he's the great prophet Isaiah. So um, just by way of quick review, um, let me just kind of buzz through this. Uh, chapter 15, Judgment on Moab, uh, Judgment on Damascus, 17. Uh, Babylon is going to be judged. Ethiopia is going to be judged. Egypt is going to be judged. Uh, the, val- the Great Valley of Vision, uh, Tyre is going to be judged. In fact, and then by chapter 24, there's a cosmic judgment, not just globally on earth, but he even says the heavens are going to be judged. So there's this cosmic judgment, there's a global judgment, and then it goes regional to all these, these cities. Nothing. It's going to escape the judgment of God. Even the created order of the cosmos will all be judged. So if you can get your mind around it, no, you can't. But I'm asking you to to think about a cosmic level judgment where the sun and the moon and the stars, everything gets stretched by God. That's Isaiah. Now, if you understood the full import of what that means, that kind of authority, then you get to chapter 25. And this is what's beautiful. So he writes, Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will give thanks to your name. You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Right out of the gate in chapter 25, Isaiah models what all the nations should do. Stop and give praise to God and submit to him as the great planner, the one that has great purpose and the one who's faithful. This is the very reason why judgment will be regional, it'll be, it'll be global, and then it's going to be cosmic because people are not worshiping Yahweh. So um, you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago. I just want to read through this. You have turned a city into a heap. A fortified city into ruin. A palace of strangers is no longer a city. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. City, cities of ruthless nations will revere you. You know what that means? There's going to be repentance after the judgment. Verse 4, for you have been a stronghold for the helpless, a stronghold for the poor in its distress, a refuge from the storm, 
a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a rainstorm against a wall. Like heat in a dry land, you subdue the uproar of foreigners like heat by the shadow of a cloud. The song of the ruthless is silenced. Verse 6, now the Lord of armies will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on his mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain, he will destroy the covering which is over all peoples, the veil which is stretched over all nations. And he will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in the water of a manure pile. And he will spread out his hands in the middle of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pride altogether and the trickery of his hands, the unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down, lay low, and throw to the ground to the dust. So let's walk through a couple of these things. It's so, so important to me. So again, I, I comment that Isaiah models what all the earth should be doing, stopping, acknowledging who God is, and praising him. And then he says, For you have worked wonders, plans formed long ago. Plans, itza, in Hebrew. Plans that refer to, uh, really, could be translated counsel. You give good counsel or good advice, or you have purpose. It's often translated as counsel. Um, get your mind around that. God has plans. In other words, um, if I could use some, some harsh language to communicate that idea. God's not a bumbling idiot. Up, upstairs, you know, the old man upstairs, a bumbling idiot, and he's just wringing his hands. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? Oh, my gosh. You know, people are not honoring on earth. What am I going to do? He's not up there in a panic like he's some stumbling, bumbling old man. It's absolutely the opposite. He is brilliant, and he has itza. He has counsel, advice, and purpose. In other words, <laughs> he knows what he's doing. And that gets right at the root of a lot of theology and right at the root of this whole idea of discipleship, right, to be a student of. And if you are like me, uh, sometimes it's inherently very, very difficult for me to trust. It's difficult for me to be a student of. I, I struggle with those things, whether it's my personal pride issues, whether it's my ego, my need for power, or whether it's past trauma or a variety of things. The fact is, as a human, to trust God, whom I cannot see, <laughs> and to trust that his motives 
are good toward me because of his son, cuts at the very root of this whole thing. This whole thing. God has plans. Now, you know, you want to pop over and do Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. I know the plans that I have for you. That's not the same word at all. Uh, the word plans uh, in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven is more like machashava. Um, uh, it is. Uh, it can be translated your devious thinking. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, it can be really negative. But in Jeremiah twenty, it's like I know. I know the technical thoughts that I have for you. I've got a really critical plan laid out for you. I just want you to find it and walk in it. That would, that would be a way of getting at Jeremiah 29. Not, not the exact word here. It's, uh, but, but it's planned from long ago with perfect faithfulness. Remember, uh, in, um, this is going to be 25.1. So you remember from last, the last time we taught that from the prophetic perspective that God can, and prophecy can address things in the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. And that God ontologically can see, he can declare the end at the beginning and the beginning at the end. He gets it all and we don't. You know, Again, I'm, I'm driving over here and traffic's snarled and I go, what's going on? You know, I just want to get here. No big deal. I just want to get here. And terrible wreck. And there's pieces of, of bumper and glass and plastic all over the roads. And so it's a major bottleneck right during rush hour traffic. God sees the whole thing. He can see the beginning of the boulevard, the end of the boulevard, and everything in between. So Jeremiah gives us something that's critical. The plans formed long ago are in perfect faithfulness. Okay, and I, I want to be transparent with you, I have never known a relationship in perfect faithfulness. I've never known that. A child can fail you, right? A spouse can fail you. You catch your spouse and they love you. Yeah, 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 yeah. But boy, they're in a bad mood. You know, and you really need them and you come home and they'll give you time of day. You know, or you have a need and they totally neglect it or you have a need and they totally have advice. You know, it's just, it's just humanity. Even in the most ideal relationships that you can imagine, a good Christian marriage, good Christian family, that things would be done in perfect faithfulness. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. We bring, we bring pain into the house. Frustration, bring all kinds of stuff. God's plans for you, Dale, Jenna, me formed long ago in perfect faithfulness cuts at the very root do we now have the ability to trust God knowing that he doesn't neglect his children uh, for you have turned a city into a heap fortified city into a ruin a palace of strangers no longer a city he, this harkens back to the judgment on, on this regional and global uh, therefore, a strong people will glorify you. Repentance among the nations. By the way, which is a call to us to repent, right? Verse 4, you've been a stronghold for the helpless, stronghold for the poor in this distress. Then he describes storm language. Uh, storm, there's the need of shade from heat. 
the ruthless adversary, rain that beats against the wall. Do you guys have severe rain a few days ago? Do you remember that? And then the, the ridiculous cold. And how many of you, anybody here uh, had your windshields blown out by hail? I've not had that. I thought I was going to have it, but of course you see the reels. It's all over the place and, and how dangerous that could be, what it does to crops and livestock and all this kind of thing. You can imagine just the, the beating of rain and hail and what that does and what it would sound like against the wall. That's how God hears the suffering of the helpless. He sees it as something cruel and ruthless, right? And that's why I had mentioned this two, three teachings ago, that if you want to push the hot button with God, you don't do what it takes to protect the widow, the orphan, the poor. You get involved in either the abject negligence and ignoring these things, or you actually contribute to those things, or as an parent, you're an, an abuser, you are pushing a hot button with God. And it's all through Isaiah major, and, and the other minor prophets. You do that one, you're asking for it. Because God really, really does care for the widow, the poor, the helpless, the child. He really does the refuge. So, um, verse 6, Now the Lord of armies will prepare a lavish banquet for all the peoples on this mountain. My mind immediately went to Psalm 23, prepare a table before me, the prince of my enemies. And uh, aged wine, choice pieces of marrow, refined aged wine. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Israeli culture during the reign of David and Solomon, uh, Israel exported some of the best wine on planet Earth. That was a massive industry in Israel was the exporting of wine. They, they mastered how to do that. Uh, and God describes the banquet for those who repent, that it would be uh, a, a abundance. Because when you, when you hear wine in the Old Testament in this context, it means blessing. Right. You know, for example, uh, if I make make a comment about obesity just for a little bit uh, in Western popular Western culture, if you're overweight, it's bad. Shame on you. You're a glutton and you can't say no to your food. But if you're an Israeli back in this period of time, if you're fat, what? You're rich. You're rich or you're blessed. You got a lot of food. It's good. This is a good. Fat is a good thing, not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It means you've got lots to eat. What a gift. What a blessing. So we we have a different perspective on this. But God wants to bless. And so if there's aged wine in abundance of food and marrow, these are rich, high density, high nutrient uh, food. The marrow is. It's saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless you. Your vats will overflow with new wine. So it's all the language of blessing. And on this mountain, he will destroy, destroy the covering, which is over all the peoples. Paul grabs at that idea of covering. You may remember, uh, and, and Jesus speaks of this too, that, that whenever Moses is preached, there's a veil over the eyes of people. So they don't see it and they don't, they don't get it. They don't hear it. Yeah. That veil, which is stretched over all nations, will be review, re- removed. Now, verse 8, this is, this is some of the most quoted material uh, in Isaiah. It's amazing. He will swallow up death for all time. Boy, did that grab the Apostle Paul. Death, where is your sting? Death is defeated at, at the resurrection of Jesus. That was absolutely a life-changing 
conviction for Paul, that death has been swallowed up through the resurrection. So Paul writes in Romans 6 that we who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his resurrection. So that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too would walk in newness of life. Death is defeated. And that is because of what God accomplished through Jesus. And so you get that great quote, then Revelation 7, 17, Revelation 21, 4, God will wipe away all tears. It's beautiful. Uh, Psychologically and biologically, what do we know about tears? Not too far, I believe. What do you think? Tears. What's the function of tears? Healing, it's really important, kind of cleansing, part of the lymphatic system. Of What's that? Sure, lubrication of the eyes, so tears are really important. Yep, but what else about tears? What else? They often happen when we're sad. Yeah, and, and there are two driving, if you take all hormones, so by the way, if you want to make a real, a real step forward in all this stuff, understand that in neuropsychology and emotions, emotions are hormones. If you could lock that one down, you've made a major step forward. Emotions are hormones. They're neurotransmitters. They're chemicals. And they have everything to do with the endocrine system. And so hormones are categorized in essentially two major functions, attraction hormones and aversion hormones. Everything about it is like, ow, that's bad. Ow, get away from it. Oh, wow, that's good. I want more of it. I love frozen ding-dongs. They are the best thing ever. Or I love to freeze-dry, you know, uh, Skittles or just the bomb, you know, or something. But horseradish and liver and broccoli is disgusting. Ew, get away. And so you have aversion hormones and you've got attraction hormones, right? Uh, we, oh, oh, we also call them depression and anxiety. Those are some labels we use for the very same hormones, okay? Got to have them. Got to have them. Something to be sad about. Something to be afraid of. We have to have depressive feelings. We have to have anxious feelings to survive. You got to have you know, stress hormone cortisol. You got to have that to get out of bed in the morning. Do you know that? It takes cortisol for you to get out of bed, right? God knows this stuff. So tears are a part of the aversion, aversive experience, and those hormones where we get the sensation of, of sadness, death of a loved one, the death of a, a pet, or or uh, even even happy tears. You know evoking deep, deep emotion. Tears are important, yeah. But there's another reason why we have tears, and it's not just because of normal biological function, lubricating the eye, all these kinds of things. It's the tears that come from suffering. Yeah. Now, now we're getting to where it hurts, right? The secret place where there are, there are biological needs inside of us that are unrelenting in their demand to be met. Like an empty belly wants food, okay? There's a variety of needs in us. Relationship needs, intimacy needs, spiritual needs. It can go on and on and on. And when those needs go unmet, and when you attach suffering and abuse to those needs, it is crushing it is like the unrelenting rain and hail that hammer the wall of your soul. And sometimes you feel like it comes through and it does a lot of damage. And the tears that come from that. And the horrible idea that there's no relief in sight. 
It's not getting better. It is what it is. And you're looking at the long haul of abandonment, neglect, and I can go on and on and on, and it's tough. It's tough. Those tears will be wiped away. The hungry belly will be full. Those tears will be wiped away. You know, The tear of the orphan will be wiped away. Yeah. You ready? Look at verse 9. Just, I'm breathless. Look at this. Verse 9. On the day that the tears wiped from your cheek, you will say, this is the God whom we have waited for. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Kava in Hebrew means to wait. How cool is that? <laughs> it also means to put your eye on something. Like if my hope is in Bruce, I'm, I'm stuck on the road, my car broke down, flat tire, something like that, and I call Bruce, and I say, Bruce, I am so sorry. I know it's not convenient. I'm in a jam. Can you come help me? And Bruce says, I'm on my way. I'm going to kava with my eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes on Bruce. I'm going to look for that car, and I'm going to see, and I go, ah, Bruce is coming. Whew. All right, we're going to get this done. We're going to make it because I've got my eye on Bruce. I've got my eye on the person who said they would help me. Yahweh, the creator of Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth. <laughs> you ready for the hard question? Is he worth waiting on? I think, I think, is he really worth waiting on? And if he was, what would be unique about our lives? What do you guys know about delayed gratification? Great concept in psychology. What's delayed gratification? <laughs> what is it? It means you'll likely get what you're asking for, just not right at that second. There you go. It has anything to do with waiting for what you believe to be the greater good is. Delayed gratification. You nailed it. Do you have the ability to wait with the belief you're persuaded that if you do, it's going to be better than if you satisfy yourself right now. We don't do that naturally. That's why there's so many verses in the Bible that say wait. <laughs> right? Exactly. 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 So what about the guy, the girl who has tears on their cheek? not because they're being abused, not because they're in Poland and the Nazis have occupied Poland. It's not that. They're not in Dachau or Auschwitz or something. It's not that. What if they're believers, but they're bumbling and stumbling along with their sin nature, and sometimes the very thing they don't want to do, they do, and the very thing they want to do, they don't do, and... The guilt that comes along with that and they bumble and stumble and they go, dear God, forgive me. And God forgives and promise ain't going to do that again. And then a few days later, hour later, a few days later, it's like, oh, I can't believe I did. You know, 
And just this stumbling faith. You think that guy, that girl may have a tear on their cheek. Made new in Christ, but struggling with the old ways. Yeah. God doesn't fail his children, even the ones who stumble and bumble along. Hmm? He's also not waiting for you to mess up. He already knows, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. He can declare the end at the beginning. It's not like, oh, I just surprised him. Oh, yeah, God never saw that coming. Yeah, he saw it coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on that day, when the tear is wiped from that weary cheek, the person will say, this is the God that I've waited for. Yeah. Now, can I ask you to kind of push your neurons just a bit in the same way that I was asking you to get your mind around the idea of a regional judgment, Tyre, you know, Sodom, Moab, Egypt, all these kinds of things, Jerusalem. Um, It goes beyond that. There's going to be a global judgment from pole to pole. Then it's going to be cosmic. And the idea that the judgment of God is cast that far into the created universe. And, you know, that, that, that kind of short circuits some things. I want you to imagine this. If you could get your mind around what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, that eye has not seen nor ear heard. It even can't even get inside your heart all that God is preparing for those that love him. Can you imagine laying your eyes on God for the first time? What does he look like? <laughs> I know we're short circuiting our neurons, I know. But you get the point. We're going to see him. We're going to see Jesus. And when you look at the book of Revelation and the descriptors of Jesus in chapter 1, it's like there's fire, like as bright as the sun in his eyes. How do you look at that and not change, you know? And we're we're going to see it and we're going to say, this is what I've been waiting for. This is it. Everything I've ever wanted and more is right here, right now in front of me. And what this going to do? You know, so, so Paul got at these things. The writers of the New Testament knew Isaiah was speaking both in the past, the present, and the future. And he calls Israel to wait. Turn your eye toward him. Rejoice and be glad at his salvation. He finishes that with some more language of judgment. That in Moab, they, they had some structures, some homes that were pretty high and lofty, high-tech homes. And God says, I'm going to bring it all down. The thing you trust in, I'm going to bring it down. Kind of like the little meme that's rolling around now that says, uh, if God can't get your attention, he will disturb what is getting your attention. (laughs) God can't get your attention. He'll disturb what has it. True. Yeah. The unassailable fortifications of your walls he will bring down. Lay low and throw it to the ground to the dust. Okay, you're the body of Christ. This Isaiah 55, wow, I love it. You're the church. How do we pull this into our world today? 
What do we draw from it to help us make it through the day? Or are there other scriptures that you can think of that relate to this? Yeah. And how can they not see Jesus? Yeah, the veil. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Well, and there's a bit of the mystery, so um, I'm going to say no on the happy tears, and I'm going to say yes on the bad tears. Yeah. So that's how I read it, because the tears that he's referring to is all framed in suffering, persecution, the horrors of the human condition, as Tim, opposed to happy, happy things. Tim Keller has, uh, he talks about that, and he says he calls it a time when all broken things will become unbroken. Yeah. And I love that. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's going to fix it all. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, it makes sense to me together, but um, I don't know the rest of you, whatever, but I was listening to a, a message this morning on the way to work, and um, he was talking about in the SEAL training about how if you want to, What's waiting on you if you ring the bell? <clears throat> What's waiting on you when you ring the bell? Guaranteed you're going to get this if you ring the bell. Do you know? A tremendous meal, a hot shower, and at least 12 hours of undisturbed sleep. Yeah. 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 That's so good. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody turn to Psalm 27. I want you to look at verse 14. Psalm twenty seven fourteen. Wait for the Lord, be strong, let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for the Lord. Um the prophet Hosea. I know it's a little hard to find, but if you wanted to turn there, maybe mark it. Hosea 12. twelve six. Hosea 12.6. 
So as for you, you return to your God. He's like saying, let's get this right. We've got to get back up on the rails. As for you, return to your God, maintain kindness and justice, and wait for your God continually. Jenna, don't ring the bell. Don't quit. Don't ring the bell. Yeah. So um, let's do a couple more things. Um, I want you to turn to Matthew 4 and Romans 6 and kind of hold your finger in both places. Matthew 4, Romans 6. I know you're very familiar with all these things. So I know you're familiar with the story of the temptation of Jesus, right? After 40 days, you think he's hungry? Oh, my goodness. The, the mental exhaustion. What happens to your brain when you deny your brain fats and you deny your brain carbohydrates and water? You'll go psychotic. You'll hallucinate. You cannot. Yeah, you, it, you go psychotic. Yeah. Your brain is 60% fat. It craves cholesterol. Has to have cholesterol to survive. Your brain has to. Has to have water. You deny those things, you will go insane. Okay, he's 40 days in. Do you think he could have some psychosis? What kind of rocks do you think are everywhere around him? Oh, the round, brown ones that look just like a loaf of bread? Huh. Yeah. Satan knew that. They knew he was on the verge of psychosis. You know, hey, look at this bread. Or look at this rock. Make it, make it bread. God will take care of it, you know. Can you imagine? You know. And if I might be forthright, a lot of us are tempted, tempted, quite frankly, when sin over when we're at our best. Come on. We're at our best when we're tempted. Bellies are full, beds are soft, secure. We got it good. And we experience heavy duty temptation. Can you imagine going 40 days <laughs> and being at your worst and experiencing temptation? Yeah, you get the idea. So talk about delaying gratification. It's epitomized there. Now, look what Paul does in Romans 6. Uh, it's, it's brilliant as he's walking through what it means essentially to be dead to sin. And he says this in verse 20. Romans 6, 20. For when you were slaves of sin, now that's a pre-conversion idea. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in relationship to righteousness. You had no obligation to do the right thing. You're a slave to sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the, for the outcome of those things is death. What Paul is saying is you've been born again. Why do you think going backwards is going to make you happy? What if, what if you did turn the stone to bread and you got to have your nice fresh loaf of baked bread? What if you got it? And 10 more loaves if you wanted it. Going to be happy? And Paul introduces the idea of shame. By the way, which is the key concept that is used to describe what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve, for the first time, experienced shame. Core shame. So what benefit are you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? By the way, that's like serious best practice clinical psychology right there, by the way. Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is, this is all from the book. 
Okay, it's all for the book. You know, so I've got an alcoholic in the office or whatever the issue is, the addicts. And if I come at them with shame, what, what are they going to do? I'll, I'll probably push them deeper in their addiction. But if, but if they told me about this big, terrible stumble that happened last night, and I, I smile and say, was it good? Did you enjoy that? Was it really, did it really make you happy? Of course, you know exactly what happens next. <sighs> no. No. But if I come at it, you are the most pathetic excuse of a client I've ever had. You do nothing, I ask. You don't take your homework seriously. And I bet God's mad at you too, just like me. Nah. What's, what's the good outcome of that one? Going full Moses law, nothing good would come out of that. It'd make me feel better because it's now back to the ego power thing when you get to call out somebody else's sins. Whoa, talk about a power rush. I get to point my finger at somebody. Yeah, Isn't it really cool to get mad at somebody for the way they sin and yet ignore the stuff we do? So, Paul says... What's the benefit? Driving from the things of which you are now ashamed. Yeah. So, you are the God that we have waited for. Beautiful language. If I could give you a sneak peek, I'd pop over to Isaiah 26, verse 3. The steadfast in mind, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. I love that. The mind set on him. Setting your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. So, all right, let's look at this. Paul reflecting back on the Savior that Sue reversed it all, reversed the curse. And Paul saying that the taking of this bread and the drinking of this wine, this juice, is an act that we do saying we now belong to him. And so Paul says, in fact, what's fascinating, when you look closely at 1 Corinthians 11, Paul acknowledges that the principal reason why we go to church, do you know what it is? It's going to sound rather Catholic. What's the, like, the reason why we do church service? Communion. Paul says it. It's there. Isn't this why you meet? You know? So this is important stuff. So Paul talks about tradition. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks... He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until it comes. Uh, couple of things I want to, to draw out of the text. One, 
right after this in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is now in Gethsemane. And when he's kneeling, we imagine he's kneeling on a stone or something, and he's sweating blood. He's in a traumatic response. He's having a panic attack. Right? His capillaries are bursting. He's under so much stress. And he says, Father, I don't want to drink from this cup. Is there any way? Is there a different cup? Is what he's saying. Do you think this is the same cup that's referenced at the last meal? He took the cup, which was like a big cup. And he said, here, take it. Drink from it, all of you, singular. So they all shared from the cup. They passed it along. Do you think that's the cup he's referring to when he's praying in Gethsemane? Lord, I don't want to drink this cup. Please let it pass from me. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. I think they're the same. Yeah, yeah. I think you're. Uh, yes, it's the same. He's facing death, and he knows it. And he knew it when he was passing it around at the meal, the last meal. Something else that's kind of interesting in Luke's gospel, chapter twenty-two. Luke's account of the tradition of the Eucharist. Luke says after they they finish the meal, they leave to go to Gethsemane, which is the common park for the poor people to hang out. And the mob comes as they're coming. I imagine you could see the torches, you know, as they're making their way along the Kidron Valley and all those things. He knew it's coming. You can see it. There's the torches. They're coming. It's a matter of time. And Jesus begins to teach. And he says, you know, remember when I sent you out and I said, don't bring a money belt and all that stuff. Yeah, you need to do that now. Start taking money with you. And he said, by the way, if you don't have a sword, get one. Get one. And the disciples go, We've got two. And he goes, it's enough. You want some irony? That swords, those two swords are with him during the Lord's Supper. They were just wrapped up. Can you imagine? Two weapons on the laps, possibly on the laps, of the disciples while taking the bread and the cup. How's that for Irony. Knowing that they came in him with swords. Yeah. Yeah. So, this is my body. This is my blood. The blood of the covenant, a new covenant. I want to pray. Ask you to pause, reflect, and believe <laughs> that your tears. And for whatever reason they fall, one day will be wiped away. Abba Father, thank you for grace that's unexplainable. Thank you that you reverse the curse of Satan against us. You bring life out of death. And you do so because of who you are, not because of us. So we take the bread, we take the cup, and we say thank you. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your steadfast love. Help us to turn our eye to you and to wait and to pursue what is just and kind and to wait for you now. And one day we will be at that banquet with more than enough aged wine and the finest foods 
and we will celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. We love you, Jesus. In your name, amen.